If you would, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. I will be reading Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 26. Luke 6, 17 to 26. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him because power came out from Him and healed them all. And He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Lord Jesus, my prayer is that by that special, ongoing, sovereign grace of Your Spirit that we hear these words You spoke 2,000 years ago on that plateau. Oh, may it be true that before any of us in here die, we hear these words as disciples. We hear these words for what they are. A celebration of what it is to belong to Jesus. To the glory of that holy name. Amen. The question that Jesus puts before every person is this. Do you want to be really, truly, everlastingly happy? Or ultimately and unendingly miserable? That was the gist of His sermon on the plateau 2,000 years ago, and that message is still very relevant for every soul living today. 
Let's look at the setting for these words first. In verses 17 to 19, we read, And Jesus came down with them, meaning the twelve apostles whom He has just chosen. He came down together with them and He stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples. That's a second group who are not apostles, but many of His disciples and followers are there. And a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him because power came out from Him and healed them all. So, get the picture. There's a lot of people here. I don't know. It's got to be into the thousands at this point. This Galilean preacher is becoming more and more popular. And Luke sets out, there's three groups of people here. You got the twelve, they're with him up close. Then you got a crowd of disciples who have been following him or clinging to him or believing in him. And then you got another huge crowd of this mixture of humanity from way up north in the port cities to way down south in Judea and the center of Judaism, Jerusalem. And remember, they're in the middle here, they're in Galilee. This is where. This sermon is happening. Now, most of you know that as you read this sermon, it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Here, this sermon, as it starts here this morning, goes throughout the rest of chapter 6. In Matthew's Gospel, there's three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. But because of the similarity, many scholars think that this is probably the same sermon, the same occasion, which I think is possible. Luke's is much shorter, 30 verses. Matthew's is 107 verses. Both of them begin with a set of Beatitudes. Set of blessed are yous. Both of them end with the parable of the two houses. One built on a rock, one built on sand. Now, Jesus also, he could have preached this same basic content at different times and in different settings as Pretty much every preacher who's ever lived has taken the same content in different settings and preached it again with different nuances. But if this is referring to the same particular day and setting, it could be. And there's no contradiction between Matthew saying he went up to the mountain to deliver these words, and Luke's saying he came down to a level place. This is what I mean. It could very simply be that level place like a plateau on a mountain. Now, Matthew, taking this perspective, the larger view, because he didn't give us at this point in his gospel what Luke gave us last week, that Jesus was already on the mountain where he named the twelve apostles. 
He just sums it up. Here he is, Jesus, he's on the mountain. He goes up to the mountain and he delivers it. It's his perspective. That's right. He's on a plateau. Luke, he's already on a mountain. So he says he goes down to a level place on that mountain. There's just perspective there. No contradiction between what we call the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. We don't know positively. Could be the same sermon. Okay. Now, let's go to it. With the healings and the exorcisms this day, Jesus had their attention. And notice verse 20. He says, and this is key for what Luke's doing, and then he lifted up his eyes on the disciples. Not the whole crowd. He's already set up. There's others who are not disciples. He is saying this sermon of Jesus is, is particularly addressed to His disciples. It's a sermon directed at them, but at the same time, we know there are non-disciples at this point who are also listening in. Now, the sermon that goes throughout chapter 6 begins with four beatitudes. Huh? Okay, Th- That's just the Latin word for happiness or blessedness. So, in other words, that's a big word for saying, starts with four Jesus sayings, saying, blessed are you who, because, and four times. And those four blessed are you's are mirrored with four woes. Meaning, very bad for you. What Jesus is doing is drawing clear lines between two groups of people. And the reason He's doing it is so that it is clear that every person must identify with one or the other. There is no middle ground. Summarized, He is saying, is this you? Blessed are you who... We'll get there. Why, Jesus? Because your future forever will be very good. Mirrored by woe to you, others. Because no matter what you're experiencing now and how good it is, your future will be very He's saying there is in the end a reversal of fortunes coming. There is a great awakening that will stun people. Now, I'm going to do something differently than I normally do, and that's this. Before we go to the text, I want to do some theology first instead of the way I normally do it. There's a reason for it. But here's the the larger theology that we have to get. Don't forget that Luke has already made it clear about the coming of Jesus is this Old Testament predicted coming of the kingdom of God. It's core to His earthly ministry. 
The King is here. The kingdom in the person and ministry of Jesus is invading humanity. And the reason we got to get this is because if we don't, we may totally misunderstand Jesus' words in this sermon. Okay, so in other words, what we've seen is Jesus is coming, is this invasion with His kingly rule, authority, that is in His ministry, and it is today, changing people's hearts, desires, ruling over them. The presence of the kingdom since Jesus is fulfilled. It's here. You remember this? But the the kingdom is still also not yet. So it's this biblical backdrop tension that is behind these words. What we have seen is that even in Jesus' ministry and even today, people are entering the kingdom. And it's being evidenced, how? By their change of desires. Hearts for the king. Something in them has changed. Faith, trust, a transition from treasuring the world to treasuring the true treasure of God in Jesus Christ is happening. That is the evidence that the kingdom has invaded one's heart. These people are still sinners. Something's different. But the kingdom's still not yet. We still live in mortal, death-doomed, disease-ridden bodies and we're all going to die. And that's not the way it's supposed to be and that's not the future kingdom when He raises everybody from the dead. Okay, we still await the future of the resurrection, of the new heavens, of the new earth. We've got to get this in the little hopper of your mind of Jesus' ministry where we may think as we read His sermon here, He's saying, you must change your own lives as I and my Father stand back. And when we see, look at that, he, he started to forsake His love of money. He forsook other things and became more poor for a purpose. Terrific! Therefore, I owe you the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. Mercy. Blessed are you. It would be a total misreading. Let, let me just take what Matthew gives us in this sermon, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this. Blessed are the merciful, because they shall receive mercy. Oh, I get, oh, terrific, tit for tat. God, I obey your law to show mercy to others, and then you will show mercy to me as a sinner and forgive my sins in Jesus. If you read it that way, you have totally, totally missed it. That's not what's happening in Jesus' words. It's not what's happening in the Apostle Paul's words or in the Bible 
as a whole. But see, if you understand that the gospel of the kingdom is this sovereign rule and reign of God invading the world with Jesus' coming, and it is present, it is here, it is now, it is powerfully changing and drawing sinners to Jesus Himself, that they're becoming changed by that power of the kingdom. They're believers now. Their hearts and their values are changing. If You understand now, all of that is the evidence that the kingdom rule and reign has come and went, smack that person. Or as Jesus talks about the dragnet. The kingdom's like a dragnet. You throw in the ocean, you drag it, and all these fish are in it. Human beings are being dragged into the kingdom. And then there's evidence. When you understand that that's the biblical backdrop, then you will know that becoming merciful or hungering for righteousness, etc., etc., are all the fruit of His prior mercy. Following me yet? No. The mercy of the kingdom of God in the world opening people's eyes to the truth and drawing them to Jesus happens before anything else that He's talking about. What I mean is this. Jesus says to Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay? That means God is not standing around, crossing His fingers, hoping that Peter would somehow recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. That's not what's happening. Jesus said in John 15, 6, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. If you are in Jesus, if you have had your eyes opened, that He is the only way, the truth, and the life. That His sacrificial death was in order to put away your sin and His resurrection is your eternal life and hope for the future. If that is you, you have to realize it is not because you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The kingdom of and rule and reign of God sovereignly swept over your soul. That's why you see it. That's why you're in it. Now how Jesus said it? Unless you are born again, you cannot see. What came first? The seeing or being born again? Being born again. In order to see. In order to be in. And that's the work of the kingdom. And that's why Jesus says these stunning words. No one 
can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. See, it's vital to understand this for the interpretation of various passages in the Bible. Because we want to be honest with all of Scripture. And there are numerous passages in the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that teach that God will show mercy on us in the future if we live a particular way. And there are many other passages that also make it clear that God is the one who has already shown mercy enabling us to live that particular way which will inherit the future blessing. Give me a nod if anyone's following me here a little bit. Okay. See, it is that dynamic that is the biblical framework. That is the framework of the Christian life. When he says, Blessed are you who are this way. Every one of us have been born into sin. We by our nature, my children by their nature, are dead to God. And we willingly go for lies and disregard the truth. We hate the idea of loving Him and being dependent upon Him by our very nature. And so we are all, as Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. But... God sent the King with the kingdom. And particularly so that in His true human nature He would be the substitutionary sacrifice upon whom God's just wrath would be poured out. And through that substitutionary sacrifice and His glorious resurrection He purchased all of our salvation. That's the biblical backdrop. Meaning, from beginning to end, He purchased your new birth. He purchased that eye-opening experience where you found yourself, I believe, He purchased your sanctification, your ongoing Christian life. He purchased the fruit that flows out of faith. When we get to the future judgment seat, God will say, Joe, <laughs> you're still a sinner. But I can see the effects of my son's mercy. That is, the effects that produced faith. And that faith produced what we're going to see in Jesus' words here. It produced fruit to some extent or another. And, and so I can see that your faith is real. In other words, I can see that within you that 
faith that is genuine is the thing that united you to my Son. And therefore, it is clear that nothing in your life that you did, but that my Son's perfect humanity, His righteousness, has been put to your account. That your sins have been punished and done away with on the cross. This is the biblical large uh, framework in which Jesus is speaking. If you don't look at, therefore, the blessed are yous who, because it's really going to go great for you in the future, in this larger biblical framework, then you will not be able to understand them for what they actually are. What are they? As he looks at his disciples, if you're a believer today, if you're in Christ, if you have genuine saving faith, you are one. And he looks at you. And he says these words we're going to look at. Not as, come on, got to do it. No, He's saying, this is the announcement of how wonderful it is for you. Because it's true that presently you're in the kingdom. They're announcements of how blessed people are who already possess these traits. That the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the spirit of God, in the hearing of the gospel of God, has produced within you and is ongoingly working in you. He is saying how fortunate are those who have been swept up into the presence of the kingdom. Right now. Why are they fortunate? Because it is those ones who in the future consummated kingdom will be raised from the dead to an everlasting joy and happiness. Okay, that's my best shot at the theology. Let's go look at the text. What I want to do, I want to take the blessed are you, though, the, the Beatitudes with its mirror image, the woe. So first, let's look at verse 20 and 24 together. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. All right. Is Jesus saying that salvation is not by faith alone, but it's really by an, a socio-economical standard of living alone? Is that His point? No. Uh, no here's, my, here's my contention. It would be wrong to take... Jesus' words to mean this blanket saying, look in the world, who, okay, whatever, whatever that line would be that we would call poor, okay, just doesn't matter right now, just somewhere in that gray area there's a line, and you fall on this side, you're poor, you therefore are saved in, you will forever rejoice. 
oh, sorry, you fall on this line over here, you're not poor, or let's just say, you are really wealthy, all of you, by definition, cannot be saved. Well, that just does not meet the standards of other words of Jesus. And even in Luke's Gospel, when he gets to chapter 8, he makes it clear, there were a few rich, wealthy women who were supporting Jesus and the apostles and their ministry financially. And it's not like, oh, they're outside. Okay, So that's there. Later, he's going to show us Jesus meets this rich tax collector, Zacchaeus, and he welcomes him into the kingdom. So, so when Jesus, blessed are you who are poor, or crying and weeping, or, or who are hungry versus rich, or belly filled, or laughing now, these are not absolute categories of socio-economical or physical states that he's referring to. There's something connected to people who may be in those states that doesn't in and of itself mean anything for your eternal good. But may mean something the opposite. When he says poor here, there's all kinds of reasons people are poor. Proverbs condemns the kind of poverty where people are just pure old lazy. But people are poor for all kinds of reasons that work very hard because they have vicious, brutal dictatorships throughout history. They, they live in a part of the world. Uh, I was born here in the Los Angeles area. I wasn't born in some African village where there's drought. And all the money that even flows into it is stolen by the dictators over the people. There's no choice there. They're doing everything they can. They probably work harder than most of us to try to survive. So there's all kinds of reasons for poor. But the point is this. Oh, there's something about God's ways where He loves to take the down and outers and even use that physical condition as the means through which He sweeps through with His kingdom because He uses that poverty to have people cry out and realize how desperately dependent they are upon the Creator and they see their sin. So he's not just saying, okay, you're poor, you're in, you're rich, you're out. And here, contextually, there are a couple keys. One of them is this. Just remember, he's got the twelve now and other disciples, okay. And he looks at them he says, now look at guys. Blessed are you who are, who are poor. Here's the point. Because he's talking to those who are in the kingdom. So if you're in the kingdom and you are poor, blessed are you. And remember, he's already made it clear two times. He, Luke has let us know through, that these disciples left everything to follow Jesus. And the effects of the kingdom may do that to people. It may cause them like Peter, and James, and John, and Andrew to leave behind their business, not knowing what the future will hold financially. It may mean Levi or Matthew, who was probably the wealthiest of the twelve, because he's good at extorting money, 
He left at all, not knowing what his future would be. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Because where true joy is found is in what you have found. The second reason, it's not merely blanket poverty or blanket wealthiness for the woes, is because of verse 22, where he, where he makes it clear that underneath what he's talking about is a person's clinging to, believing in, following the Son of Man, Jesus. It's, it's the effects of the Gospel that he's talking about. So, He's talking about believers here who have given up and may be called to give up other opportunities in the world to make more wealth. And what drove them is Jesus' call in the kingdom. And He says, don't worry about it. Blessed are you. So there is this definite spiritual heart issue undertone under the words poor and rich. That's what he's saying. And there also is this reality that blessed are the poor who hear the gospel. For the last 2,000 years, the millions of poverty-stricken people who have been swept into the kingdom, Jesus made an announcement to them. Oh, how happy you are. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's the truth. That's the gospel. There's another truth. And that is that to be rich financially is dangerous. Then Jesus, who could be saved? (laughs) He says, nobody. But guess what? Jesus can even save the rich. Without the sovereign work of God, no one will be saved anyway. And that was Jesus' answers to the disciples when Jesus says how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But why? Because there is a deceptiveness to richness and to living in America and to having the home and the white picket fence and insurance policies out the gazoo. Everything's safe. I'm fine. And you die in your sin as opposed to the means of i got to cry out to someone is there a god and he reveals himself to you so look the gist let me just paraphrase what i think blessed are the poor what do you, what, what do you mean blessed are those who are materially poor who nonetheless look to god And His promise. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of God. Now, one commentator then sums it up this way. I'm going to quote him. Although Jesus here is warning people who are rich, He is warning a particular class of rich people. On another occasion, He states how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. There is a peculiar temptation built in to prosperity. The prosperous can be self-sufficient. 
they can be given to arrogance and smugness, assuming that they can buy and sell anything that they have a need of and no need of God. However, the Bible makes it very clear that prosperity in and of itself is not evil. Many of the great saints of Scripture were not only wealthy in spirit, but materially also, like Abraham, or Job, or Joseph of Arimathea, or Nicodemus. But if riches incline us towards that false sense of security, then indeed the worst curse a person could ever have would to be to be overburdened with wealth. As Jesus warned, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Let's go to verse 21 and verse 25. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. The emphasis in Jesus' words here is clearly on the difference between now in this life and later in the life to come. Blessed are you who are hungry and weep Twice. Now. Why? Because in the future, you shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. Jesus is distinguishing between the way things are now in this life with many people and the way they will be in the future consummated kingdom when Christ comes back. Which is opposite of the attitude of our day. Get it now. Get all you can get. Never mind eternal consequences. Or as as Jack Sparrow say it, take all you can get and give nothing back. Kids, he's an evil guy, all right? But the truth, the truth that Jesus is trying to get over to our hearts is that what is happening now in your lifestyles has eternal consequences. When He says those who weep now They're blessed. He means believers who suffer. 
the Apostle Paul, great Paul, you come to Christ. I got a message for you, Paul. I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. You know what Paul's thought is on that later? If Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Plain aren't true, then he, would, he was deceived. If there is no resurrection of the dead and an unending future happiness compared to his measly 33 more years or whatever, then Christianity is a farce. But, if Jesus' sermon is true, it's one of the most important messages ever delivered by any preacher in the history of the world. Those who laugh now... Let me just stop. Jesus is not against laughter. If He were, I am damned for sure. I like to laugh. I like to make people laugh. A lot. It's not His point. Jesus laughed. What He's saying is something like the rich man in the parable that He tells later in Luke 12. In other words, the rich man who says, quote, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Laugh. Be merry. But God said to him, this very night your soul is required of you and the things that you have stored up and prepared whose will they be? Jesus concludes so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not Rich toward God. That's what he means. Yeah, there's a kind of hungering now. There's a kind of laughing now. You don't want to be living that. You don't want to be laughing in derision and let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow. We Because we're all okay when your soul is not okay. When things have not been made right between you and the one who created you. By coming to the only solution, the Savior. That's what he means by laugh and weep. That's what he means by hunger and satisfy. Do not be satisfied with anything other than reconciliation with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 22 and 23 along with verse 26. Blessed, disciples, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. 
Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. First, don't miss the qualifier. When believers experience this kind of hatred and reviling and exclusion in life and in culture, the qualifier is because of the beauty of the Gospel. Because you're a believer. The way he just summarizes it here is because of me, Jesus, the Son of Man. In other words, not because you're a jerk or an idiot. He's not saying be a jerk and then get persecuted and say, ha ha. It is because of the truth of the Gospel. Because you hold to this preacher on the plane. All of Him. You don't pick and you choose. And you don't change His words and His meaning 2,000 years later to be more acceptable in culture. For so did the false prophets. See, the world of religion is filled with churchgoers who they're smart enough to say, I don't want to jettison and say, I don't like Jesus. Everyone wants Jesus on their side. All religions want Jesus on their side. But there's this temptation to compromise between the biblical Christ, who is the Creator, only one God, who Himself in the womb of Mary became a genuine human being in order to absorb the wrath of God, which is against, okay, from our cultural standpoint, even that nice little lady. The truth that there is no other way to be welcomed into God's arms. Whether you're born in a Christian family or a Buddhist family or an Islamic family or a Jewish family, there is only one deliverer from your just deserts. Okay, in other words, he's saying, when you hold to this stuff, especially in our culture today, it might not go real well all the time. Will you cave? Or will you believe and lovingly plead with people? When the culture together is making law homosexual activity is sanctioned as marriage. Will you stand for the truth and for the love of dear homosexual active family members that you care about? 
or friends or neighbors. Be a Jeremiah. He had in his culture a hard message. The truth. And no one liked it. And there are a lot of other so-called Christians, I mean prophets, who told the people what they wanted to hear to their destruction. Jesus says, hold. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Even if it gets you killed, Paul, Peter, ten thousands of believers over the last two thousand years. It is amazing how people want to compromise. They say, I go to church and I hold to Jesus, but not really kind of like all that. Christianity works for me. So, so it's good for me. And, and that's good. And other religions are all kind of way to God. Where do you get that from? Come on, just be honest, okay? Just be honest. No, no, I can't say that. Whew. Good, just go with your notes. And, and when most people who do this, you know, one of the things they really appeal to about Jesus are the words of the Sermon on the Mount. This great ethical teaching. We'll see some more about how loving your neighbor. And it's the exact opposite throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's the core of Jesus' ethical teaching is your adherence to me. The only Savior. Blessed are you because you have the evidences that you see that I am the only way. That's at the core of the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator, Kent Hughes, summarizes it this way, quote, Jesus tells us, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. This cannot happen to a Christian apart from some sacrifice of principle. Yes, we should be well thought of by outsiders, according to 1 Timothy 3, 7, but that is different from universal popularity. If we are acceptable and popular with people who live according to the spirit of the present evil age, we may in fact belong to that evil age and thus share in its judgment. The desire for popularity can become a self-focused spiritual anesthetic. End quote. So, just real quickly, notice Jesus doesn't say when you're persecuted, hold on, because one day you'll rejoice. He says, that day, even when it's hard, you're rejoicing. Because you know something about the future reward. Throughout the centuries, whether it's a person being tied to sticks that are being set on fire, or a guillotine, it is that dynamic that Jesus is speaking of that caused them to stand. 
That is the gospel. Don't miss the core of what it is to come to Christ with the deceptive teachings within segments of the church. I was in a church life for numbers of years where, oh, you believe in pie in the sky, sweet by and by when you die. Come on, Christianity's here and now. Thinking, what Bible do you read? I, I gladly believe in that. And if you forgot to tell me that I've got a crutch, let me tell you, i got more than the crutch. Christianity is, I need Him to take me from the dead to life, to live forever. Christianity at its core is living this life with eternity in view. Summed up, what we see in these Beatitudes and woes is Jesus is saying, blessed, happy, good for you in the future who recognize how poor and hungry and despised you are because, what's happened? Because you're born again. The kingdom is swept across you. You become alive to me. Don't you see how blessed you are even in those circumstances? And he's saying, be warned, disciples, for how bad it will be for those who face God on judgment day without the Savior. There will be a shocking reversal of fortune. This message of Jesus is so relevant for us today. It says again, if you want to be truly happy, then you must see that there are only two ways to live. You can live for things and temporal pleasures in this world and be destroyed by them. Or you can embrace Jesus Christ as your ultimate underlying pleasure in all things and have the promise of future reward. There's no middle ground. That's what he's saying. There is no, I got a foot in Jesus and a, and a foot of lifestyle in, in the world. Jesus' teaching here in this sermon, by its definition, it demands having an eternal perspective. It makes no sense without it. Be poor, be hungry, be despised, and die, and it's over. It just doesn't make any sense. And it's not the way he said it. There is an eternal perspective. There is a coming, shocking reversal of fortunes. The kingdom of God is here. Be swept into it. And if that is you, oh, love these words. Hear these words for what they are to the disciples. They are this glorious announcement and celebration of your good fortune because He has grabbed hold of you. You have grabbed hold of Him 
because he's grabbed hold of you. And to one degree or another, you see the fruits of some of these things. Rich or poor, you start to realize, I hate living for money, for things. For temporal pleasure. You sense it. It's still, you can, that's there. What's different is, I have tasted of a greater treasure. And you hear these words as that glorious celebration. Blessed are you, the Savior said. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You shall be satisfied forever. But there were other people listening besides disciples that day. And there are other people listening as I preached this morning when this sermon is heard throughout the world today. And those are people who have not yet been swept into the kingdom. Who have not yet been changed from the inside to embrace lovingly as the treasure of their soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are they to hear as they stand there on the plateau outside of all these disciples coming from north and south? They're to hear, whoa, look at Jesus talk to His disciples of how well it is for them. But who, who are they? He, how Jesus describes them. They have particular kinds of clothing on. That's different. There's something about them clinging to Jesus that has produced this ability to rejoice while being persecuted or to even be poor in the world and despised in culture, if need be, yet they're happy. What is it? The outsider should look and say, help me wake up. Help me wake up to be hungry and poor in spirit to want that. And they should say, Lord Jesus, change my heart so that I'll see. I'll see my sin. I'll see that there is only one true God. I will see that you are offering me eternal, undeserved happiness freely. So, Lord, that's my prayer, twofold. As we are preparing our hearts, Father, to celebrate this supper with your Son. And, Lord Jesus, as we are preparing our hearts to eat the bread and to drink of the cup, it is to drink in the truth of this sermon of these beatitudes to us whom you have died for. Work in us, especially in these moments to follow.